As another year of Exploration Radio draws to a close, it is time to look back on some of the valuable nuggets of industry wisdom our guests have unearthed for us. At the end of each episode, we ask our guests two questions. What is something that must die in our industry? And what is something that must live? That something can be a concept, an idea, a business practice, a mindset, anything. The answers have been many and varied, and they are always a valuable insight into our guests, their approach to life and business. This is part four of our Ideas A Must series. I'm your host, Ahmad. Come join us and let's explore. In short, I say TK. My job specifically is to recover diamonds from the concentrate. This is my hope every day to find big diamonds. I think about that in the bus every day. Ira Thomas, welcome to Exploration Radio. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you today. And so the first question is. What is something that you think needs to die in mining? Something that we need to get rid of our industry? You did send me these questions. And I mean, we talked about before kind of inclusion and diversity. And I think that there is certainly a perception that mining is still very male dominated. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that is changing. It's definitely been a bit slow, but I think it it really is about continuing to watch that and, and push for that kind of transformation and trying to get you know, more and more women into senior roles. I think we've done a good job in certain parts of the business, but there still is that challenge of the of the glass ceiling where you just don't see very many women executives now pushing into the Exco's. Sorry, I've got dogs jumping around in here right now. So that was probably not very good. No, that's fine. That 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 fits in well with our earlier discussion about your dog story. So that's perfect. I honestly think the you know, the mining industry as a whole has gone through you know, a pretty important transformation, not just in recent years, but I would say over the last, you know, 25 years that I've been really active in the business, I think, you know, at that time, there really was this kind of view that the world had to, to catch up and recognize the importance of mining. I think that we quickly migrated to, you know, we as an interest industry need to modernize, we need to recognize that there are some uncomfortable legacies that exist within the mining industry and we have to own those. So I think that's a big part of it, you know, not passing the buck, but recognizing that the world has changed and we understand and know a lot more about impacts on the environment. And we understand, you know, and know how to develop mining projects more responsibly with a longer view to, you know, full cycle reclamation. So I think, you know, that's been a big kind of evolution. And of course, in recent years, that's kind of migrated more into the social arena or the sustainability space in and around communities that are now very much key stakeholders um, and partners in in the process and into the, you know, the realm of governance and inclusion and diversity. So I think our industry, you know, has demonstrated that it's capable of changing, but we've still got a lot more work to do. So there's a couple of points in there that I'll come back to. I'll talk about back to but first 
conversely, what is something that we need to keep in mining at all costs? Something that's fundamental to our DNA that we shouldn't forget? Well, I think every industry really has to be able to reflect on where they've been. I think it's really important to take the achievements of the past. You know, Canada, is, for example, has been a great mining nation. This is a country that's been built on its development of its natural resources. And there's a lot of expertise that's been developed in this country, whether it be on the technical side around you know, mineral exploration or, or engineering, or even on the financial side and the development of the Toronto Stock Exchange and, and the capital markets that finance early stage exploration. So I think there's you know a lot of really positive things. What we have to do is kind of marry that wealth of experience with a more innovative, forward-thinking agenda. And I think if we can do that, then we really have a very compelling combination where you modernized an industry that's got a strong a strong future, especially as we think about the whole energy transformation. That's kind of the favorite buzzword around the industry. That's right. But I mean, I think yeah, there are important points in the fact that we are a very energy intensive industry. And also the fact that, you know, the major cost of kind of the energy point of view is how do you get energy out to kind of the remote site where mines tend to be? You know, that, that, that is a fundamental cost. Uh, so, you so, see, yeah, so what does the world look like when, say, we start using another source of energy, which is maybe, say, a little bit more expensive, or you have to be a little bit more sustainable from the energy point of view? I think these are quite a big issues that, you know, we ha- we're going to have to address at some point. Like, uh, I, I completely agree. I think it's all it's already happening. And again, it comes back to that decision making and that balance, right, between what you want to achieve uh, as a society in terms of your cost of energy or your, your cost of resources that we use each and every day versus the potential energy or CO2 footprint associated with the production of, of those materials that we all all are, you know, need and use and don't intend to give up like our cell phones. That's and right. our cars and, and basically everything we have in our lives today that we don't grow in our garden. I mean, that's right. Yeah, like we've effectively become a consumer society. So it does mean that, yeah, it's not like we're going to go back to a you know, 1800 lifestyle where everyone's growing their own food and you only live with what you need. So, so yeah, so a lot of these things are going to have to be done in a sustainable world. And what does that world look like when the consumer wants to be more environmentally conscious and the industry has to kind of deliver a product that yeah, they're going to want to buy in that sense. Yeah, and I think transparency has a lot to do with it. I mean, I think we need to be educating everyone uh, about how and what we do and, and what the, the environmental cost associated with that is and, and what the benefits are. And I think that that education is really important because the consumer has an important role to play, right? We are producing the products that the world is consuming on a daily basis. And if we do that in a transparent way, so it's very clear um, what the potential impacts of those developments are, then then they're in a position to, you know, be making those decisions and taking responsibility for those decisions, I think, too. So, Ira, so you mentioned a little bit earlier, and I want to touch on this uh, a little bit. Yeah, you mentioned the, the concept that historically we were a very male-dominated industry. Um, and, you know, and you've obviously had, you know, quite a long career in this industry. And, and I think, you know, like somewhat uniquely about your career is the fact that you started quite early and, and yeah, you've had this kind of long residency time uh, in the industry. So do you, 
care to comment a little bit how the industry has changed to allow uh, you know, someone like yourself, and particularly women, to stay in the industry around the time when uh, you know, like people want to have families, people want to be a little bit more sedentary for all intents and purposes, and can't go you know traveling around or can't do kind of the uh, the field time required for a lot of roles. So, how have you kind of managed that challenge in in your career? Well, listen, you know, I think businesses have to adapt. It's not only mining, but it, you know, there are many industries and businesses that are feeling the same sorts of pressures. But for women in particular in the mining industry, you know, that that has been a definite challenge in the past of trying to find that appropriate work-life balance. And particularly when it comes to travel into remote areas. And, you know, initially this was a problem for our, our you know, high potential female leaders, but it also evolved to become a problem for our high potential young men as well, because increasingly they find themselves in you know, relationships and having partners that, you know, had careers that had to be managed as well. So there was no longer one partner, you know, making the decision or agreeing to be the, you know, the the parent uh, or spouse that would stay home so the other could go and fulfill their duties, you know, in some high-powered career. Increasingly, it's about balancing two high-powered careers. And so I think that that um, really necessarily necessitated, you know, a different outlook. When I started in this business, you know, you got told you were going off for four months and you were just happy to have a job and you went off for four months and there was no deliberation. That's um, right. You know, today it's definitely, well, if I'm going to go for two or three weeks, then I've got to balance that off against, you know, two, two weeks back in the city. So my spouse can manage that through, you know, through their own job priorities. And, and these are not easy things for sure, but I think given the, the, the way that we have embraced technology in recent years and and certainly through this covid period we've we've come to really understand that you know we can get business done remotely and and that it, you know you don't always have to be there in person and i think that part has helped and i think this sort of view that you can take, you know, periodic timeouts um, from your busy day job and still come back in and, and and not having lost your sort of place in line, if you like. I think that was a big fear for a lot of career women that wanted to go off and have a child and, and worried about going on maternity leave and, and basically forfeiting, you know, a lot of their future career potential. So I I think employers are more sensitized to this. I think they now understand that there's a real value in working with their high potential leaders to incorporate these important personal aspirations and ambitions, because if you want to get the most out of um, that employee, then you, you know, you've got to, you've got to work to accommodate, you know, the other important kind of aspirations and and their life work balance equation. That's right. I mean, I think, you know, I mean, there's a couple of points you made, which I think are quite interesting. You know, like when I kind of look at this problem, and I know this is something that the industry talks about a lot, you know, like one of the things I kind of think about is, you know, for a large part, we are a very technical industry. And if you take any technical job, and if someone spends a couple of years out of a technical field, you know, what you really need to look at is how much that technical field changes in that time. So if you took a six month break, you know, you might be ancient by the time you come back because of the way things have developed. And I guess, you know, like structurally, I kind of always saw this problem in that yeah, not just women, but if men wanted to take time out or, and you made this great point, you know, like I, I will put myself as that example. 
you know, like there, there came a point where being on the road 300 days of the year wasn't appealing to me anymore. And yeah, so that kind of narrows the type of roles that you can probably go for uh, in that particular part of your career as well. Uh, so I always think that there's a bit of a structural problem in the fact that, you know, if you are a technical industry and if you don't create other technical avenues where, you know, someone can step away for a couple of years, you know, to to take care of whatever personal stuff they want to take care of and then come back and don't feel like they are way behind the wave and then now feel that you know their career progression is going to be hampered by that time out and i don't think we've quite you know it's only recently i think that we've kind of started addressing the problem in that sense rather than uh you know well we just got to find people that are that are happy to travel 300 days uh, on the road. That's right. I mean, you you have to find different ways to uh, achieve the same outcome, and it it doesn't mean that it you know it has to mean three hundred days on the road like it perhaps used to. It doesn't mean that you don't have um, a certain amount of travel that needs to be accommodated. You know that obviously has to happen, but I think there is just a a much greater willingness by senior leaders and boards um, to try and accommodate, you know, their the needs of their high potential people. And uh, I think that's been a big evolution in the mining industry. You know, I think when I first started in this business, you know, things were just the way they were. You know, mining was a rough business. Mining business was, you know, in many situations an unsafe business where you know this just comes with the territory this is just the way it's done and we have to accept that there's a certain amount of risk in this kind of business i think we've evolved to the point now where you know the the culture of the mining industry is 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 vastly different safety is a priority no fatality is acceptable that's right yeah and that's been a massive shift i think from for what you know the way things used to be done in kind of the you know, the 80s and the 90s or, you know, that era where, you know, this type of risk was known, but, you know, like you wouldn't put any resources or anything behind to kind of change that. You know, it was just like, ah, it is what it is and we'll just work with it. Yeah, no, and I, I think there's been a just a huge shift in attitude. Um, you know, you know, it's kind of an industry that is, you know, used to pride itself on being able to, you know, bootstrap anything, and you know, the tenacious people that could go into remote places and difficult places and create value for shareholders. And in this industry, you know, the people themselves are very resourceful to. You know, I think a more mature culture now where, you know, sure, all of, all of that is is still very characteristic of our industry. But now we know um, that there are, are better ways to to run these operations, safer ways to run these operations, more productive ways to, to run these operations, and that it, it doesn't have to be a completely male-dominated um, agenda. You know, we have, uh, for example, at Lucara, you know, we are 85% female in our executive team. The managing director of our mine in Botswana is a woman. Uh, we have female truck drivers in the pit. These are all things that 20 years ago would be, you know, extraordinary. And they're still unusual today, but they are not nearly as rare an occurrence to see women, you know, working, um, you know, in the mine, running dozers and trucks and and actually active uh, at that level. So I, I think 
that's a, you know, a real plus and a real positive, but we've still got a long way to go. You know, one of the things I find interesting is, you know, while I was doing the research for you, yeah, there was a lot of mentions on the fact that, you know, a lot of your accomplishments are uh, regarded as, I think, accomplishments because you are a woman that has succeeded in this industry. Do you think that, you know, we're getting to a point where we can be a little bit more gender agnostic when we talk about people's achievements? And I guess I'll, I'm asking your personal perspective in the fact that, you know, like how people view uh, you or, you know, like the type of, say, criticism or plaudits you get when you kind of take different roles. I guess the view that people take on your career is changing in that sense? I certainly hope so. You know, I have always believed in a meritocracy. I think that being a woman in mining has has had as many advantages as, as disadvantages, for sure. I think that there is a lot of people um, that, you know, along the way for me that have been real cheerleaders and supporters and mentors and really encouraged me. And then there are others, as, as you pointed out, that kind of look at it as, you know, the fact that I'm an anomaly uh, being a woman in this industry that's really garnered most of the attention. So, you know, I've always felt ever since I started my career that whatever potential bias you encounter um, in your job or in your in your workplace can be overcome by just hunkering down and getting the job done. And I think that's something I've always prided myself in. Um, you know, whether someone had a view that you couldn't do it as a woman and 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 you and you demonstrate that you can or you're here because you're a woman. And so my expectations are lower. And I and I think in both those situations, it just makes you want to work harder to, you know, to make sure that you kind of disprove those those myths or or dispel those biases. And I think a lot of women feel that way. I mean, I guess it's the second point that you made that I, I find quite interesting is that, you know, like a lot of the rhetoric sometimes behind your achievements is, well, the achievements are impressive because if I put them in a smaller pool of only women in the industry, then it looks really impressive. And I and I feel like, you know, like we, we sometimes have this stigma of kind of putting people in a smaller pool to say, you know, like, yeah, they're impressive, but they're impressive because, you know, they're only competing against whatever a smaller pool. And yeah, like I, I guess I look at your career and you go, you know, you start your career against anyone. And I think it's quite impressive, you know, the type of stuff you've done and the, the variability of stuff that you've done. And uh, I guess it's, you know, like it's something that I find that, you know, like obviously there's a, a marketing piece that kind of goes behind this as well in, in, for certain companies. But yeah, it's also the fact that as an industry, you know, maybe we should move past the fact that we just kind of look at, like you said, uh, uh, you know, based on people's merits and, and judge their performance based on that rather than always trying to pigeonhole people into a smaller population and saying, you know, whether they're impressive or not based on that. Yeah, listen, I, I, I really um, would never want to be compared to, you know, just my gender. That just seems ridiculous to me. Uh, at the end of the day, I am running a company that has a broad group of stakeholders, including shareholders, and my job is to make money for them. And that at the end of the day is um, a real uh, test of, of my success. And I think it's as simple as that. Yes, I've, I've had some really interesting opportunities throughout my career. And I've done a, a lot of uh, incredible 
things and had the opportunity to be involved in a lot of amazing projects. And, and I don't think any of it is uh, diminished because of my gender. I think these are all um, experiences that really have no relation to my, to my gender, I guess. At the end of the day, um, as I said, the bottom line for me is that in any project I've taken on or, or any new challenge, it's really been about, you know, measuring, you know, success um, on the basis of, of, of whether I'm, I'm actually doing better for my stakeholders and, and shareholders. Yeah, that's right. I mean, ultimately, that's the real test of whether you are successful in what you do or not. I mean, you know, if you'd had a track record where you lost a lot of money for shareholders, you know, like I'm sure the opportunities that you would be provided beyond that point would be diminished to some degree. You are getting the opportunities you're getting because of your track record of having done things previously. Yeah, I, I only asked that question because there was an interview that I read where I think you know you made some pointed comments around the fact that you were sometimes questioned by investors when you've taken certain roles whether they, you know, whether the company needed to hire someone a little bit more capable to kind of run uh, the certain company or the certain role. No, absolutely. I've definitely found that you know where I have encountered well, you know, you're you're not a a mining engineer. What do you think you you know about building an underground mine? Well, you know. The same question posed to a male mining executive who'd been in the career for 35 years and been involved in a number of successful developments would, would never be asked that question. And I would point out that there are many men in this industry that have had spectacular failures yeah. uh, and lost their shareholders a lot of money and gone on to be, you know, seated by a headhunter and an impressive job the next time around. I would say the likelihood of a woman doing that yeah, is extremely low. Completely agree. And uh, you know that point I would I would I would I would say there's there's many lives for uh, <laughs> some of my counterparts I would say. And it's just it's also a testament to the pool, you know, the talent pool right now in this industry is so tiny, right? I I always used to laugh with some of my, you know, my peers um in the you know, the same age that have been in this industry now for more than 25 or 30 years that, you know, we we almost win by default because there's just so few young people, you know, choosing a career in mining. And, and, and that too is a, is a problem. You know, we have to be able to attract the top talent if we're going to continue to, to grow this industry in a sustainable way. And, and that's really where my comment about, you know, you, you can have spectacular failures and go on to, you know, fight another fight and live another, you know, day. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's, you know, companies and people that seem to pop off every, uh, every boom and they, you know, and you kind of look at their track record, track record and go, you know, there's no reason why they, you would ever give them the keys again to a company. But, you know, I think it's a fantastic point you make is, you know, this kind of retention problem that we run into in kind of the mid-career uh, part of, uh, of a lot of people in our industry, you know, if you don't fix that, you know, the problem kind of manifests itself on the other side on kind of the executive level where, you know, but like you said, by default, some people are just getting roles because there isn't anyone else around. Yeah. And, and, and listen, it's not that I don't believe that people don't deserve second chances. This is a tough business. Um, you know, you can have your sights on the prize and, you know, you hit the cycle at the wrong time or you, 
you know, didn't manage the share structure as, as well as it, it, it should have been. And, and, you know, suddenly you find yourself in a situation where, uh, you know, you don't have uh, healthy value creation. And, and, and so that does happen. And sometimes these things are like, sometimes these things are just out of your control. Stakeholders can change their mind. You know, the market changes, investors kind of lose confidence in something. You know, sometimes they are just external factors that kind of railroad you in this process. No, definitely. And I think that's why it's just so important to be, to be able to, I, I think, learn from, you know, all of those experiences and hopefully you take them with you and you, and you, there isn't a single person I don't believe in this business that hasn't gone through some sort of trial or tribulation um, in this business be for all of those reasons. And I, you know, I think the important thing is to, is to, is to kind of learn from that and, and try not to do that the next time, you know, I'm sitting with, you know, a share price on an asset right now on a commodity that's very much out of favor and, you know, it's half the value uh, that it was, you know, two years ago. And yet the company has added significant resources to the bottom line and de-risked kind of the, the longer term growth strategy. And so, you know, that's disappointing, but it also, you know, fundamentally for the, for the people that understand, you know, the value that's, that's there and being created, it, it represents a huge opportunity. And so, you know, you have to turn those things into positives and, and, you know, recognize that, you know, by, I think, shepherding these assets along and through these cycles and doing the appropriate things as leaders and making sure that you're not basically sacrificing future value that, you know, these assets will eventually come through that cycle. And then you're incredibly well positioned to hit the next wave. And that's, I think, something that this industry has, has done particularly well over many years of living through many mining cycles and knowing when to take your foot off the gas and, and, and when to put your foot on the gas in order to get these projects through and into development in a way that's going to make money for shareholders and all the stakeholders is, is, is the real key. Chuck Fipke is a breed unto himself, an explorer and innovator, a scientist and entrepreneur. Chuck has the tenacity of a bulldog when he believes in something. And this is what basically I think uh, has resulted in Chuck's success over the years. Just about every geologist prospector knows what I'm talking about. It's, you know, the, the fine day <laughs> you, you want to discover and, and you know, that's what you were trained to do. And, and that's what you want to do, hey? And, and, uh, you, you don't really do things for the money. You, you, you do it, you know, to try and achieve that, find, find something, hey? Chuck and his partner in Diamed Minerals, Stu Bluson, discovered that De Beers was exploring at Blackwater Lake. This discovery generated a, a staking rush in the Northwest Territories that was unprecedented in Canadian mining history. And huge amounts of money were raised and huge amounts of exploration were done as a consequence. And his lab, in my mind, has become one of the best in the world, actually, for this type of thing. The equipment was all designed and built hey, for, for concentrating, uh, making concentrates of diamond indicators. And so a lot of equipment you can't find anywhere else. I remember particularly this one time, this elder 
brought me in this little hut and he was so proud he had this like this, this grizzly piece of meat and, and with a little bone and he took me and showed me he was thought it was so cool you know and I once was with the uh, spent three weeks with Bushman in, in the Kalahari Desert it was great fun you know to, you know track animals and see them how, how they lived in, the, in nature I had this little car and my mom used to get upset because I'd go down this hill at breakneck speed. I find I just don't have a lot of fear. I, I, I don't fear really anything. It's crazy, you know, like I, I, I should fear more. He also supports a number of wild group, wildlife groups that uh, are trying to preserve different kinds of wildlife around the world. As most people know, he does have a, a very uh, vibrant uh, group of uh, competitive thoroughbred racehorses. In fact, one of them has won the Queen's Plate and uh, some others have won uh, some serious stakes races around the world. I, I started riding horses, you know, when I was in high school. And my first horse was really uh, an, an Arab and it was just a little yearling and I, I broke it myself. I just started really liking horses. And it takes a person that believes in what they're doing. And, and a person that wants to achieve something, a person that wants to find that pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And Chuck is certainly that kind of person, there's no question. He's just as keen today as he was in the past. Welcome to Exploration Radio, Chuck. Oh, thank you. Yeah, welcome for you guys to come all the way from Perth to Toronto. <laughs> yeah, we've been trying to get to PDAC for a while, so this is the yeah. first year that we've actually done it. So, oh yeah, let's see how it goes. So, there's uh, two questions that we always ask yeah. our, our guests. Um, so, the first one is, uh, what is something? It could be an idea, a concept, a behavior that you think needs to die in mining. Something we need to get rid of out of our industry. Well, you, you see, I, I, I think. You know, finding a mine, hey, yeah, you you'll destroy a, an area, hey, like you know, three or four square kilometers, hey, mm -hmm. you with me? Good. But but with time, hey, you can bring that back, hey, mm -hmm. you can bring it back to to even better than it was, hey. Mm -hmm. You know, it takes maybe a lot of time, but it 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 it, it occurs in nature anyway. I mean, I, I've I've seen places where there's old mines hey and, and it's all everything's grown up hey mm -hmm. and you could hardly see that the mine was there because it's all vegetated naturally hey mm -hmm. without doing uh, uh so 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 the thing is is I, I i i think you know finding mines provides the revenue hey for schools hospitals you know the department of environment and, and all these things, and right. you know the politicians—they take all this credit, hey, 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 for doing this and that. But if they didn't have have the mines and and the revenue, hey, you know, they they wouldn't be very popular, hey. Yeah. Y you know, you need that that revenue. So <laughs> one last question, yeah. Chuck. Um, if now looking back, if there's something that you could have done differently, what would it be? Uh, well. It's really, you know, uh, uh, you know, professionally, hey, f for for doing the mining, and you know, I I I I 
wouldn't want to do anything differently. Hey, mm -hmm. nothing. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but I'm not going to get into my personal life, hey, but <laughs> but there are things, hey, I could have improved. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. Fair you know, enough. Yeah, you know, the trouble is, too, is uh, uh, that, you know, in order to achieve something, hey, you really have to put a lot of effort into it, hey? Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, if... Uh, uh, do you, you pay know, a price for that? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, you do, you do. Hey, you don't... Uh, 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 have as much time with kids. Hey, there mm -hmm. are, are some uh, some people. Hey, that put all their time into their kids and, mm -hmm. and you know sacrifice and that. But but they're they're doing that and 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 they can't achieve a, a like like. I, I met this guy that had, had won two gold medals at the Beijing Olympics, mm -hmm. and, and I I uh, I said to him, well, "What what's the scoop?" Uh, how come you won two gold medals, you know? And and, and uh, he, he won the overall medal for, for gymnastics, eh? Mm -hmm. And then he won uh, on this, the horse, the, 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 what do you call it? The vault. Oh, yeah. Horse vault, you know, yep. sort, sort of thing. And, and he, he, he said that, uh, well, he had, he had worked, you know, every day for, for like, Eight year, nine years, I guess he said. Hey? Yep. And uh, he he had t uh, taken twenty eight days off because he was sick. Hey, uh, uh, and he had to work uh, in the mornings and and uh, the evenings continuously every day. Hey, and he said the the, the funny thing he says the, the thing that I, I I I didn't do I was the worst at was the vault. Hey, <laughs> and, and, and he said. But what happened is I I got injured and and my injury was such that the only thing I could do was vaults. <laughs> so for six months I I did the vaults and it, uh, it became my worst uh, 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 thing to to my best and I got a gold medal. <laughs> you know, but 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 you have to work really hard at things, eh? Hey? Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, if you know if you had you know, got married and had a bunch of kids and stuff like that. He w would never have gotten those gold medals. Hey, yeah, hey, yeah. Hey, hey, and 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 uh, so uh, the thing is, is you know, you just got to balance. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in order to to achieve really good things, uh, you, you know, you really have to put a lot of work into it and, yeah, yeah. and you, you can't do everything. Hey, I mean, like, you know, the conversation comes across as, you know, you've been really good at what you, what you do. And that's why it got you there. You worked hard to get good to, to get there. Do you think you've been lucky in some way as well? I, I, I really think, Hey, Hey, you make your own luck. Hey, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, 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 you know, the harder you work, the luckier you get. Hey? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. the old Gary Player thing. Yeah, yeah oh. that's great. Oh, I, I, I was on his farm. He used to have some. Uh, he looked after some of my horses. Gary, <laughs> Gary Player. He was a wonderful guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Wow. Still is, I guess. You know. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's as good a spot to end on. So. Okay. Thanks a lot for coming along, Chuck. This okay. was great. Okay. Good. So, Tony, welcome to Expression Radio. Thank you for having me, Hamid. So, the first one is, what is something that you think needs to die in mining? Something that we need to get rid of? 
I think I have a pretty good idea what you're going to say for this. Yeah, I, which one do I pick? I think what needs to die in mining is the inauthenticity that can be at times rampant. And when I say inauthenticity, I mean, you know, we talked about paid coverage, paid newsletter coverage, and then telling, you know, that the company's this, 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 or the inauthenticity, how you report your results, pretending or making it look better when it actually isn't, the inauthenticity, how you approach communities with this bias or inauthentic view on how, how it's going to look. You know, at the end of the day, I do tell the communities, listen, we're not building a playground. It's a hole in the ground. I can't hide that. And then I, don't say that. Don't say that. Don't say that. This, this, this. No, this is what it is. But there's a place for metals. It's part of our lives. There's a need for it. And it can be done responsibly and ethically. And it can also be done in harmony with the environment to, to a certain extent. And if there's an opportunity with the locals to, to benefit that or play a role in that, it's, it comes down to, again, you want to be part of this. There's risks associated with everything. So you have to be comfortable with those risks. So that's kind of, I think, you know, the inauthenticity, marketing, First Nations, local community, engage, all those things I've said, I think what needs to die in our space. Well said. So conversely, what is something that you think we need to maintain in mining at all costs? Something that's fundamental to our DNA and we shouldn't forget? Well, I'm going to go with what first came into my mind, and that's integrity. I think, you know, integrity spills over into accountability for when you miss on a drill, accountability when you have an oil or gas spill on your property, integrity to when you walk into an investment meeting and you say, this is truly independent research coverage, I didn't pay for that, or this is the transparency on you know our salaries or options or how we're compensated or where we bought it. I would love to see more integrity, you know, maintained and also improved in our space because that's the foundation for just being a better human. Excellent. That is an excellent point to end on. Thanks a lot for joining us, Tony. This was great. Awesome. Thank you for having me. I appreciate your time. Our next speaker, I've got a, a, quite a resume here. He told me I could just introduce him as the dude from Toke that runs Doyon, but I'm going to actually, he's quite an impressive resume, and I'm, uh, he's going to have to suffer through me reading through it. Uh, Aaron Shutt is the president and CEO of Doyon Limited. He's responsible for the day-to-day -day business operations of the Doyon family of companies. He's worked at Doyon since 2006. Prior to being named president and CEO, he served as senior vice president and the chief operating officer from 2008 to 2011. He clerked for the Alaska Supreme Court Justice Alex Brinner, after graduating from Stanford Law School. Prior to joining Doyon in 2006, Aaron was an attorney at the Anchorage offices of the national firms Sanosky Chambers, Soski Miller, Munson LLP, and Heller Ehrman LLP, where he represented tribal and ANXA corporation interests in transactional and business matters. He's a Koyakin Athabaskan, was born in Anchorage, and yes, he is a dude from Toke. So, welcome, Aaron. Welcome to Expression Radio, Aaron. Thank you. Glad to be here. So we always ask people two questions at the end. So the first one is, what is something that you think needs to die in mining? Something that you think we need to get rid of our, out of our industry? I guess the one thing we see that's always present in our discussions is that flip at near end of mine life to some other company that has many fewer resources to do the reclamation and, and other work that needs to happen at the end. And you see it in oil and gas too. We don't really face that at Doyon because on our land, we have our agreements with mining explorers and would let us 
prohibit that transaction. But I think that's something that we see in the industry that somehow we got to do a better job addressing it. Do you mean the custodianship of the land that we've used and how we're actually going to do something with it afterwards? Yeah, the, the reclamation liabilities that are often oil and gas as well, all the resource industries, especially historically, they're not adequate and not well planned. And you f- flip it to the next company and they do less and then they flip it to another company. And pretty soon there's like, yeah, I am. So in saying that, one question I had is, how do you think we handle the that handover between companies like if i think about say an exploration project you know often it tends to be the case that you know a junior company comes in and does the initial exploration and then if it becomes something or a project at a certain scale then you know you're gonna that company is either gonna get swallowed or the project is gonna get swallowed by a bigger company how do you find that handover because you know you might have maybe a more intimate relationship with a small company but then when it gets handed to a bigger company you know there is the potential for essentially things to be dropped along that process so we have a little more control in our agreements a little bit more of a right to veto so that we can make sure that the financial resources at least are there if we get to that point we don't have anything that's even close to that in time right now, but that's the the legal agreements are, are pretty strict on that front. Yeah, wow. That's an interesting way to kind of handle that. Yeah. But I mean, like, I'm not saying that it's good or bad. I think, you know, sometimes junior companies are not great at handling that relationship and then they're giving this bag to a bigger company, you know, with all of its problems. As an industry, I don't think we quite acknowledge how we should solve that. There is a potential for things to go wrong there. So the last question that we have is, conversely, what is something that you think uh, needs to stay in mining and exploration, something that's fundamental to our DNA that we shouldn't forget? Well, that's the, we really like the exploration because it's, I mean, mining makes the world go, right? And so we need these resources and they're out there and it's, that search for them is fun. Like that's what we're trying to instill in a bunch of our young people and a lot of our deals all require scholarships and training for our young people. And we like to see them get into the field and participate in that exploration so that they enjoy STEM careers. They spend time on our, on our own lands looking for these various resources and hopefully make careers out of it. Mm-hmm. Since you said that, can I ask a question? So you talk to local communities. So you're talking to the younger generation that's coming up. Do you think that they find some level of, maybe angst is not the right word, but some level of kind of trepidation about the fact that should they stay to a more kind of traditional living off the land kind of lifestyle? Or do they go down the path of working in something like exploration and mining where they, where they, you know, I guess they're still tied to the land, but they're not necessarily, it's not the substance in that sense. Because this is something that I guess I've found in certain programs is that you obviously want to hire as many, the younger generation and kind of bring them up so they become more informed. But there's always this kind of conflict sometimes that's always been expressed to me from their side. Yeah, there's that conflict in some of its education. Mm-hmm. So we don't have anyone living a truly traditional lifestyle anymore. We all use modern implements. We want our we want to upgrade our telecom systems. We like planes and boats and 
most of our shareholders live in the city now. Most of our kids are growing up in the city. So that's another one. It's like we need to get an economic base in our rural part of our region so that our people can stay in our homelands and not migrate further and further away from them. So that's part of that education. Part of the education is how much science has progressed our industries, how much safer they are for individuals and the environment than they were just a few years ago. And the, the horror stories are usually quite old. And those were true of all industries were much more dangerous than they are these days. So, so it's just one of those things that you got to spend time and, and you want to create opportunities for our people. That's what our, our thing is. We want to create opportunities for our people. So a number of them are going to be in, in the resource industry. I guess, you know, like I just think from the company side, it's probably something we, you know, like we maybe not have utilized as much, you know, because when you're going into places like Alaska, the people there really want that relationship with kind of the land. And I think, yeah, we could have done maybe a better job of, like you said, educating the younger generation. It doesn't necessarily just have to be the younger generation, but anyone in those communities, because working on kind of exploration projects, they still can have that relationship with the land in slightly different way. But then it also gives them opportunities to kind of, and they can decide either they exercise the opportunity to stay there or, you know, they exercise the opportunity to go work somewhere else. And I've always kind of felt that, you know, maybe we could have done a better job of maybe pushing that a lot more, that rather than just like bringing expats from anywhere, investing the time in, in people that are in local communities. Yeah, and like particularly geology. I mean, geology is a science of the land. So if you kind of pass that on to someone that already has a relationship to a land, that can only be kind of a positive thing if it allows them other opportunities along the line. Great. So that's it, Aaron. Thanks a lot for joining us. Yeah. This was a great conversation. Really enjoyed it. Hello, Wache. Um, bonjour. Shui Charlie Angus, Deputy Federal de Timmins Bay James. I am here today to talk about the attack that has been launched against public institution in Ontario. The dismantlement of Laurentian University is an act of national vandalism of the likes of which we've never seen. For people to understand how important Laurentian is, you have to really understand the 60 years that went into building that institution. It is the only public institution in the country with a mandate to support Francophone, Indigenous, and the working class Anglophone communities from the northern regions that never had access to education on the post-secondary level before. My father was a Laurentian graduate. He was never able to go to school because he was a son of a miner. He had to quit school at 16 and get a job. But Laurentian gave him an opportunity when he was an adult. He ended up becoming a, a professor of economics. That's not the only story. I know other people whose grandfathers worked at shifts at Inco and went to school at night and changed and became professionals. Pete Betts, welcome to Exploration Radio. Thanks, mate. Good to see you guys, and it's a pleasure to be here. So the first question is, what is something that you think needs to die in our industry? It can be a concept, a behavior, anything that you want to jettison out. All right. This is an on-the-spot question. I, I would like to see fewer websites with mines and Tonka trucks and people standing around in hard hats and orange vests. Very yellow. Yeah. Or orange or whatever they're wearing. I just feel like, you know, we know what that is. The image has to be different. 
that's the first thing. So, and that's easy to do. Just put some different picture there. Anyway, so that's one. What's the second question? <laughs> All right. So the second and last question. Oh, actually, there might be a question after this. But anyway, a second question. What is something that you think needs to live in our industry? Something that's fundamental to our DNA that we should never forget? I've got a fluffy answer for that to start with and then, and, and then, and then a, a real one. So I think geologists are amongst the most passionate people out there. They love it. That is a, uh, a gift and also a curse. And, and so the gift is that we, we are super passionate about it, so we should be. And, and the curse is when we find our, um, our, our, some of our peers who disagree with us, we get to engage with that disagreement and, and we forget why we love geology. So I, I would love to keep that passion about our discipline and the celebratory part of it, and we could kind of park our differences, I think. We kind of should be on the same page. And if we disagree, then let's keep it private, not public. That's all right. That's all right. Okay, uh, here's another question. Do you remember that probably 10 or 14 years ago, you got a call from the Australian Immigration Department regarding a honor student? I just want to know, what did you say on that call? Uh, that was you, wasn't it? I don't remember. I can't remember. I, can, I can't even remember the call. I remember, I can, but I will tell you, I remember going out into the field with you and a guy called Robin Armit mm -hmm. during your honours years. We only took one CD with one song on it. <laughs> and we had to listen to that one song for two weeks. Yep. Anyway, it was a song about a thylacine by <laughs> That's an artist right. Nick Barker. It was hilarious. Robert and I were laughing about that today. So, yeah, and I remember playing lots of ping pong with you in your lab, in your room when I was an academic. So That's right. Not doing any academic work. <laughs> but, yeah, neither were you, so we were probably pretty good company for each other. No, that's right. That's right, exactly. No, thanks a lot, Pete. This is great. This has been excellent. It's been fun. Thank you. Cheers. So something lighter. At the end of our interview, we always ask, I guess, two questions. So the first one is, what is something that you think needs to die in mining? It's, it could be an idea, a concept, a behavior that you think we need to get rid of out of our industry. So you go ahead first, oh, Justin. Look, it might be a bit sort of cliche or topical or whatever, but misogyny, sexism in mining needs to go. We need to employ more people, women. Mm-hmm. And diversity, we need to provide an environment where they can work comfortably, um, and we can't lose them. We lose. There's so much talent, female talent in the industry that we lose for a whole variety of reasons. Yep. We've got to do better. Cool, great one, Kyle. For me, it's it's kind of stemming out of my new role in, in business development, but it's kind of. Kind of a geological bias towards bigger areas with this belt scale terrain, but I find it really, really confusing when you're chatting to people in, in our industry and talking about these bigger under, underexplored areas, areas have never seen contemporary exploration. When I mean contemporary exploration, like really deeper drilling, you know, mm -hmm. busting through the surface, and you kind of ask why they've never been explored and it's, oh, there's there's no gold there, you know, mineralisation models yep. and analogues. But we like, we proved that wrong time and time again. You know, <laughs> we, we kind of, we did it at Yamana mm -hmm. for a long time. There was the Yamana terrain and the Yamana and Dorothy Hills Greenstone belts were never proposed to hold a multi-million ounce resource and mm -hmm. we've proven that wrong and, and Gold Road are trying to prove it wrong again, that we can, it can hold more than one. Mm-hmm. 
just whether it's within Australia or different different areas of the world, but when it comes to gold exploration, the more someone tells you that an area that is underexplored is not prospective for gold, for me, that's a that's a huge driver that it's it probably is actually pretty great and you should someone <laughs> yeah, just needs yeah, to get in right. there and, and work. It's just, just that bias. The bias in being model driven in, in certain areas? Maybe model driven. Mo- models and models and analogues are really important, but mm-hmm. there is a point where you need to go and test it as well uh, yeah, when when they become a concrete fact yeah and as, as geoscientists and particularly exploration geologists um those statements shouldn't carry much waiting until you until you've got some results to yeah that's to back right. it up that's all right i know i think that's a good one um so the last question uh so conversely what is something that you think needs to we should maintain in mining at all costs something that's fundamental to our dna uh that we should never forget Curiosity. People need to be curious, and and I think we're losing that. There, there's so much information available. There's just information overload and mm-hmm. and sensory overload, and and I think it's quite easy for people to stop being curious about what they're looking at or what they're doing or what they're learning, or and it's it's too easy to learn false information. There's mm-hmm. so much out there, and Google and Wikipedia you know don't always trust what you read but be curious about everything you see and i think there's a lot of people out there and a lot of young geos that aren't quite as curious as as they could be and not mm-hmm. questioning and not questioning about what they see and mm-hmm. thinking about it mm-hmm. it's I, a, it, I, it's something i've been trying to drive for for the last probably 5 years is just a drive for curiosity in what you're doing Mm-hmm. Do you think in kind of the big corporate cultures that we have, do you think it's possible to maintain that kind of curiosity and creativity, that that you know that ability for people to to test themselves when we are becoming a, a lot more administrative in the way that we handle people and resources and companies? It's much harder. It's definitely much harder. And I think in the bigger companies it becomes harder and harder still. You know, I had a lot of conversations about this with sort of some of the our general manager of capability and culture at Gold Road, we used to talk about this on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Is how do we drive that that curiosity? Yep. And stop it being stifled by process and system, which process and system very, very easily stifles curiosity and creativity if you're not careful. Yeah, that's right. We become a little bit more about, yeah, you know, like always trying to find you know, the square peg that has to go into that square hole. And I always think that, I mean, maybe uh, I'll be interested in your perspective. So as a manager, do you think that you have to take on a little bit more in the fact that you have to figure out a way of having these kind of disparate people in your company, like Ziggy or, you know, like do you have to accept that, yeah, they like for all intents and purposes, let's call these people a little bit of a pain in the ass to manage. Do you have to take on that responsibility as a manager to some degree? Absolutely, and and don't stifle it. You know, be. I think, especially in geology, geology needs to needs creativity, mm-hmm. and it needs to have some some of the weird geos out there. It needs to have some of those weird minds because they're the ones that are going to come up with the zany ideas, which are going to amount to something. That's right. So you need to, as a manager and a leader, you need to ensure that you're creating and allowing diversity in the team and diversity of thought as well. Mm-hmm. As soon as you start getting, you know, if everyone's the same and it's just all group thought, you're not, you're not going to be successful in anything. Yeah. So embracing 
that those creatives is really important mm-hmm. and being a you know manage they're hard to manage mm-hmm. really hard to manage but yep. you've got to be prepared for that and put your hand up to manage it and and fight for them as well you know fight against the other forces in companies that <laughs> yeah. might say, "Oh, they're a bit weird," or they're they're behaving badly, or they mm-hmm. they might be behaving badly. You know, it might look bad, but it's not. It's not malicious, it's not or it's really not bad yeah. or malicious. It's just yeah, it's just it's their personality. Of people, you need to have those people, mm-hmm. and you need to manage them and fight for them. That's a great point. All right, Kyle, you what would you maintain in our industry? This big innovation push. It's a lot of amazing work being done about different analytical techniques, machine learning, data learning, but what I'm really enjoying seeing is, and it kind of leads on to what you are both talking about then, is facilitating this creative time for geos and, and, and harnessing this curiosity or promoting it. And I want to see more, there's some great stuff being done, but driving further in innovation of um, management and geosystems. Now that sounds really boring, Geology roles now, exploration or mining, the administration and reporting is becoming pretty crippling. And it really, that time you get to have that creative time to just look over data, mm-hmm. no time frame, go and re-log something, it's really starting to be whittled down by all these administrative responsibilities. Mm-hmm. i like to see innovation drive more kind of one-stop shop management and reporting systems and look there's a lot of people doing this stuff so maybe we just i haven't seen it but um i think that would be a really great space to help facilitate that pure unobstructive geology time yeah i mean i think i think your point is fair in the fact that you know in the world where we want to measure things you know it's always it's often hard not often it's almost always hard to measure the direct product or impact of creative time because it's a non-linear process you know it's not like if you spend an hour then you're going to get an hour's worth of kind of product out of it you know you might spend a week and get nothing or you might spend an hour and get a lot yeah, yeah. so the, so there's this complete disparity in how that that works and in a measurable world where like everyone wants to measure you know like did you make 10 widgets today uh you know like it's a pretty hard kind of kind of thing to kind of create in that organization the the modern exploration geologists can wear a lot of hats these days and in a smaller company you can also be equal parts database and tenement management and reporting and they're all great experience to learn and and to know how to execute and important to the business but Mm -hmm. it's kind of funny when you map out what a day and a week might look like with your key responsibilities are measured and you do need to achieve for the business requirements Mm -hmm. and then the things that you can't quantify their value but we know from history and other discoveries that that time that you can't put a value on, it's unquantifiable, it's really important. And when that's being reduced in your data only only a little bit, something's really wrong with that. Yeah. Um, So one last question, which I, you know, we're kind of trying to ask people uh, is what's your greatest travel story? Is there a story that, yeah, comes to mind first? You guys can go whoever comes first. You, you, you go, Justin. Any travel? Yeah, any anything. Could be personal, could be work. Anything that you find. Yeah, if I said, give me your best travel story, what are you going to lay out there? Oh, God. I'll try, I'll try, <laughs> I need to think about that one. I, I, I can jump in with one more Aussie's yeah. thinking. Um, 
just before I graduated mid-year at Curtin, which is mm-hmm. kind of odd. I had a, f- a few units to finish off that I had the pleasure of redoing. Yeah. Um, not to mention structural geology. <laughs> but it was for children. It's good that you work on a structurally hosted gold deposit then, so that's, that's excellent. We, we've got specialists for that now. For yeah. Great learning opportunity. Yep. But Curtin, for the first time, in conjunction with the Rio Tinto Centre and the director there, um, a, a Russian guy, Vladimir, had kind of partnered up this, this weird science kind of conference summit program in central Siberia, in Tomsk. Okay. Um, it's kind of focused on climate change affecting geomorphology in the Altai region. Mm-hmm. Anyway, there were just posters up around the different science department units and you could apply to go over there and be part of this this summit. Um, not being a geomorphologist or, or having some interest in sedimentology at least, I wrote a little abstract and a submission and somehow managed to fudge my way into a AGSO-funded student trip to, to central Siberia in summer, mind you, the, yep. the beautiful month and a half of sun they get. Yep. Um, and it was unreal. We This university that was, I think the building was just a tad older than colonial Australia, yep. um, hosted us for this kind of two days of translated conference. Mm-hmm. And then we spent a week kind of camping and travelling all the way down to the to the Russian Altai Mountains in which the university, Tom, Tom State University, that hosts us have a, a glacial research centre up there and a school of mountaineering. So if you're a university student, you can spend your university break learning to mountaineer. Excellent. A pretty common commonplace yep. extracurricular activity for them. I mean, what else would you do in Central Siberia? And I mean, just so. the whole trip up there, we were... While we were on the main roads, we were just in a regular travel bus and these kind of amazing campsites by these rivers in these big glacial floodplains. <laughs> then it was going up to the mountain where it all changed. We were, the bus parked in the middle of this huge flat grassy plain and you could see the mountains and the glaciers behind us. And then parked there were four ex-Soviet Union Russian trucks. <laughs> <laughs> no seats, all us... 20 students, some from Europe and, and the rest from Curtin, piled into the back of this just metal box. There was a small potbelly fire in the corner. Yep. And then started a four-hour <laughs> descent of this eight-cylinder diesel vodka-powered truck <laughs> <laughs> into the mountains. And it was, it was a truck designed for driving, so it was, there was no real road up there. They were just kind of winging it. Yep. And gee, did we felt it. I think everyone hit the roof. At least half a dozen times, or a few mild concussions and a, and a few bleeding heads by the time we got up there. On uh, the plus side, you're not going to remember the drive anyway, so you'll be fine. <laughs> We'd also taken enough enough of um, Russia's finest little water, or yeah, the, yeah, the, the clear spirit to um to soothe their pain. But that was amazing. That was actually my first time overseas. Uh, yeah, wow. twenty two in the mountains, and just a great group of people climbing up the glaciers every day, trying to converse with. Russian geologists and geomorphologists where there was just a 99% language barrier, mm-hmm. but just lots of gesticulating about specimens. It was, yeah, it was time of our life. Yeah, wow. Jeez. Awesome. Justin? I've thought. So mine was probably um, 1993. You got, got married. So my wife was another geologist at WMC. Mm-hmm. We got married. 
we're lucky enough to get some leave without pay from WMC from Cambodia, and we went to Europe for a three month trip, and it was our first time overseas for both of us. Mm-hmm. Um, she's Croatian background, so during that trip, we just drove around Europe. But yep. During that trip, we went to visit her family in Croatia. So Croatia in 1993 was in the middle of the the Yugoslav breaking up. It was in the middle of the war. Yep. So we went to visit her family in, in northern northern Croatia, up near the Hungarian border. Mm-hmm. It was the mother's side of the family. We stayed with them for a few days. And then we were going to drive to see uh, her uncle on, a, on her father's side, which was down on, on, on the islands in the... In the Croatian Gulf, mm-hmm. so we were told, sort of, you know, go this way. Just sort of, we're given a rough route, and we just had it in those days. There was no GPS. There was no, you know, it was all paper maps. Yep. So we jumped in the car and we drove down to to see her uncle. And on the way, we went through. Sort of, we were told, you know, go around. Don't go right into Karlovac. Sort of go past this, t- this town. So we were driving along and um, past Zag- Zagreb and then down and. Started seeing sort of a bit of smoke around the place. Driving with that, you know, what's going on here? I'm not sure how close to the war front we are, but we're driving along, and then then we started seeing trucks driving along with sort of army trucks and tanks on the back. And um, turned out we were probably about ten kilometres from the war front. (laughs) (laughs) So we saw when we started seeing big convoys of trucks, we thought we better. So we drove around and further around, and we managed yep. to get a, get by that. But we were extternally close to yeah. what was an active war front at the time. We had no idea. Yeah, this we sounds like the plotline of like a Mr. Bean episode. <laughs> so right we finally got down, sort of around Riaka, which is right up the, the top of the Bos- the, the, the Gulf, mm-hmm. um, around onto the one of the islands where I had to get a ferry across to the island. Um, gave him. We didn't have a lot of cash at this point. Croatian cash. Gave him some money, ferry onto the island and down to the island, got to her uncle. And it turned out we had no idea. So they were displaced from, they were from Vukova, which is right over on the Yugoslav border, Serbian mm-hmm. border. So the uncle and his his wife and daughter and two grandchildren were staying in a refuge, a hospital which had been turned into a hostel. Yep. So we stayed with them for a few days. Oh, far out. Um, so during this time, we we're watching the news each afternoon and and the Serbians were coming up up the coast. Yep. They had boats out there and they were like bombing, <laughs> bombing Dubrovnik and the bombing sort of split. And they were coming up the coast. We were right up the north. Mm-hmm. And it was just getting closer and closer. Yep. And they were all talking Croatian. I had no idea what was talking, <laughs> no idea what was on the news. My wife would tell me every night, oh, they're up to Dubrovnik. They're coming yep. closer. It's like, what should we do? I think we should get out of here. But there was only like one ferry a week. We couldn't get off the back <laughs> yeah. off the island. So we were waiting for the ferry. And then I got a little bit crook while we were there as well and ended up with some sort of stomach ailment. So I was crook and was a sort of – it was bizarre. It was this, this hostel but on this like beautiful Croatian island, crystal yep. clear waters. You could go swimming every day and but they were you know, living on hostel food and then – Serbian army or navy was getting closer and closer and closer and then we could hear sort of sort of planes at night and all sorts of stuff and and I still remember so clearly this day we were sitting around in this little they had this tiny little kitchen you know they're all in like two rooms together yeah yeah so we're there having a cup of tea and 
we heard this like an explosion. I thought we thought it was a bomb. So my wife and I, Janet, we jumped under the table, we hiding under the table. What's going on? And they all started laughing and laughing. And so what's going on? And they said, USA, USA. I said, what's going on? The noise was a USA jet fighter pilot or jet plane flying over the top of us and explode, uh, breaking the sound barrier, the sonic boom. Oh, US wow. had just decided then, that day, to basically join the war. They flew in, yep. jet planes came in and shooed the Serbians away. That was the day they basically saved ended Croatia. The war. Ended, ended, yeah, wow. Basically ended the invasion of Croatia. Jeez. Um, what so, a way to start your marriage. So That's excellent. <laughs> we managed managed to get off the island. Yeah, shit, uh, if you can survive that, <laughs> yeah, you, you'll be fine. <laughs> That's a brilliant story. Yeah, it was it was remarkable. Yeah, I mean, a fascinating time, I think, in, yeah, like, obviously in that area, you know, the Yugoslavian kind of uh, country or, yeah, like the region had been held together for so long. It would have been a fascinating time to be there at that time. Oh, it was. It was quite amazing. Yeah. Quite quite horrific. There were some terrible, terrible stories. Yeah, of, yeah. Um, cousins lost and all sorts of stuff. But Yeah. I mean, a lot of those wounds are still there now and like oh, the way absolutely. the countries are, are still kind of... Yeah. You know, like not really dealing with each other in probably the best manners. Um, but yeah, that's a great story. Um, so that's it, guys. That That's it. Us done. So thanks a lot for coming on the show. Thanks. Thank you thanks so Alan. much. All right. So uh, we're at the end of our interview. So we always ask two questions. So first one, <laughs> I should uh, listen to the show more often. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that's all right. Um, so the first one is: What is something that you think needs to die in our industry? So it can be an idea, a concept, a behavior that you think we need to jettison out of our industry. And you guys can have a go at it each. I think something that needs to die is the idea that industry has the right to mine. Mm-hmm. And you still see that in conferences where people go, oh, I'm not going to that country because they wouldn't give me a permit that time. And it's mm-hmm. like, it's their permit, it's their land. And that's true internally and externally, is that mm-hmm. industry doesn't have the right to mine. It's got to be a partnership. That's yeah. a great one. The pressure is on. <laughs> pressure is on. This is, you said something really, really, really smart. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, what could have to stop? I guess related to, uh, well, I guess it's kind of somehow related, but related to what we are trying to do here is, um, I've started to work in, 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 in this kind of field, um, a bit reluctantly, to be honest. When I started, when I remember when Cam tapped on my shoulder saying, are oh, you, do you want to kind of take some project in West Africa? And my vision was, right, I don't want to be part of this because this is, there's too much ugliness happening. So I guess it's, it's a similar kind of thing. It's just the, that kind of behavior arriving as a, a neo-colonialist um, mm-hmm. who kind of feel like because he's white and being privileged can actually uh, uh, dig out stuff and treat people um, poorly is, is has to disappear uh, for good. I mean, we have to put the 20th century behind us. But, but that applies to researchers. And that happens yeah. to researchers completely. But I guess it's just a, it was probably more screaming from an industry point of yeah, view. Yeah, but actually, um, I mean... But like, it is true. It's, yeah, it's, yeah, you're yeah, completely yeah. right. It's not only we are as we we can be as bad as as anyone else. That's that's very true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, those are great ones. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. So, um, so conversely, and the last question, what is something that you think should live in our industry? Uh, something that's fundamental to our DNA that we should never forget? Geology. <laughs> Field work. <Dude. laughs> Geology, you know. Uh, I think it's, it's uh, we've, we've run a, a, a course recently and then, um, that was just coordinated with, uh, with Nico Lieber, who's a fantastic geoscientist that most of you guys would know. Um, and one of the things, and he's been very much into, you know, fusion data and, and working with numerical tools and so on. And one of the messages he said is, you know, these are great tools, but don't forget geology. You know, you need to first be a geologist before being mm -hmm. able to apply those tools. So, yeah, let's not forget geology. Good one. That's yeah, it. That's Thanks exactly. a lot for joining us, guys. <laughs> no worries. Thanks. Pleasure. Thanks for having us. This episode was brought to you by Amart Salim and Steve Beresford, produced and edited by Sean Jeffrey, and made possible by the contributions of our many guests. It is their time and energy that really makes this podcast possible. And also, thanks to our listeners. Again, there wouldn't be a podcast if there wasn't anyone listening to it. Happy holidays and stay safe. Expression Radio is made possible by the support of the AIG, the One to One Group, and the ASA. And we are an official media partner of the 2023 PDSE Conference. Until next time, Let's keep exploring.